0: It's been a great time um, to be with you again and twice in a year. It's been wonderful. And we have tackled some pretty lofty texts um, from Isaiah. And um, I was, even what Sarah just shared, the fact that, you know, some people think about uh, the book of Isaiah and maybe because they think about the Old Testament in general, uh, is this book, and it's showing how God is so angry and so wrathful. And then we come to the New Testament, and there's Jesus who is kind and forgiving. And if, that's such a misnomer, because in the Old Testament, in so many ways you see His forgiveness so pronounced, because you see how sinful the nations are, and how sinful Israel is, and then you see how patient God is, And how willing to forgive he is. So I'm glad if that's helped more of you to understand that and grasp that. Then I would say mission accomplished. um, Because we need to have a proper view of our great God. Who is so caring and so loving. And these images in Isaiah. And his style helps us so much. And um, the idea of indeed. You know taking his children by the hand. And that's a great image, and that's what comes up time and time and time again, that God is a savior who wants to take you by the hand and guide you um, through life. And when we pull away from His hand, those are the moments when we find ourselves in trouble. So it's been a blessing for me to share these things, and I'm glad that they asked me to take on that topic because it required me to make some connections uh, with what I'm already teaching. So um, it's been a blessing overall. Now, just pray with me as we go to these final points from our time in Isaiah. Um, Lord, thank you for who you are, your goodness, grace, and mercy. And we would ask now that you bless um, our time, help me to communicate these great truths that are really, truly awesome And you would empower me to communicate to them. But give ears to everyone that is here. Give ears that they would hear. In Christ's name, amen. So, um, quickly, who can tell me what we're going to pick up in our sixth reason that we should stand in awe of God and who can quickly give me the other reasons that we should stand in awe of God? What are the first five? What are the first five reasons to stand in awe of God? Vol- okay, I heard. where's the volunteer? I heard someone saying it. Stand in awe of a holy God, that's number one. Okay, great. What about number two? What's number two? He's an intimate Savior. Stand in awe of an intimate Savior. What about number three? What is it? An exclusive Savior. Okay, great. What about number four? He protects us. Great job, buddy. And then number five. What's number five? Okay, not yet. You're ahead. Wow. You're ahead of the game. That's like 20 minutes from now. (laughs) So he's like, that's like a prophetic voice right there. <laughs> Not the prophet or the son of a prophet, but close. <laughs> I just <lost> my job. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It's like, wow, we have a prophet in our midst. Yeah, we have a prophet. In... Yeah, there we go. Man, we have a prophet in our midst and we didn't even know it. Yeah, here we are. I love it. Exactly. All of those things are wonderful pictures of God. And... Let me say this now, going through Isaiah in this way, I think all of us know, in each one of them, this could have been the family retreat. We could have said, standing off a sovereign savior, that's our retreat. Do you agree with that? Standing off an intimate savior, that's what we're going to talk about, how God is intimate. Definitely holy, that's why we spent so much time there. Uh, protecting, we absolutely, let's just talk about that, how God protects us in life and watches over us. He is that way. We could have, it any one of them just stopped and sort of put our anchor down, if you will, and spent their entire time there. And so what we're doing is giving, uh, you're getting a, a mountaintop view of some pretty lofty ideas. And I'm hoping that what you would do is in the future, um, that you'll go back and reflect on some of these verses, um, ask questions of them as well, pray over them. God, help me to understand this better. Um, let me study this a little bit more. And it's necessary that we get mountaintop views uh, at times. Uh, I fly a great deal um, you know, here and there, and I'm often at times even writing or even times texting um, from about 38,000 feet. And I've said that sometimes, I write um, a pretty consistent little uh, devotional, informational letter to my fellowship group, and at times I've said, you know, dear anchor, from 37,000 feet, you know, above, um, whether it be Northern Africa, or above the Atlantic, or above whatever it may be, and as we all know, what a wonderful view you can get from there the things that you can see. And there have been times when I've been flying like that and I look over the plains of a different area. I remember even recently being in Africa and I'm flying over Johannesburg and and then we're going into Zambia and as we're climbing I see all of these uh, really homes and neighborhoods and townships and I'm just thinking to myself how many people, how many millions of people are represented there and how many people don't have uh, the true gospel preached to them. So it's necessary that we get these views. And I'm a person I like to go outdoors and explore. And some of you um, at times follow me when I'm doing my little um, Sunday morning. And I did it this morning here. Um, It was a great time this morning as I went out on one of the uh, areas here near Forest Road. Then I discovered another trail called Sequoia Trail. And I went that direction and I'm hearing the sound of the creek. There And I'm looking at these tall redwoods. I enjoy that sort of thing, getting out and getting in nature and seeing God's glory displayed that way. And I've done some hiking in some high places before. Um, And I've been up Whitney before. And Whitney, that was quite a challenge. And I remember at times getting up there and you're looking out and you see this vast land that's in front of you. And you can even look back on the trail where you were before, and it just seems the people there seem minuscule, but you're thinking, that was my starting point. So it gives you a perspective that you normally wouldn't have. And so when we look at things like that, like um, Isaiah from this uh, sort of mountain view top, is, it gives you a perspective, and you say, God is great. Wow. Yeah, I've never thought about him being really intimate with me in that way. And the thread that is going throughout um, Isaiah is, yes, men are sinful. Um, Judah and Israel, they've committed covenant treachery, but God is still faithful. God is still faithful. What a great truth that um, sometimes we may uh, attempt to say, if I just work much harder and if I'm much more diligent, then God will love me more. That's not true. It's not true. And why is it not true? And I addressed this a while back in, in a different message. And, and it just came to mind to me because I, I want to repeat this time and time again to people because I find that people often in the church, that is obviously churchgoers, goers, uh, they're trying to get God to love them more and better. And for God to show them more blessing. Now, there is a blessing that comes with obedience, most definitely, but God cannot love you more. And the reason that God cannot love you more is because God is a perfect God. He doesn't increase or decrease in anything. When He decides that He's going to love you, He loves you with absolute perfection. All of us uh, in this room, we're trying to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Even in the testimonies. Here are the things that I've learned. And hopefully I can implement this in my life. Or I can practice in my life. And, or here's the application for my life. We're trying to be better as Christians. Are we not? Is everyone here trying to be better as a believer? Well I would think so. Because we are not in a state of perfection. That's obvious. But God is in a state of perfection. Husbands and wives. Those of you that are married. Um, from the first time well let me ask a quick survey who's been married more than 10 years okay great anyone at the 20 mark who's at the 20 oh wow that's a young church (laughs) it's like uh, all right 15 or at a 15 okay 15 mark 14 13 okay 13 right here this is like the, the couple that has all the experience in life right here right 13 years of marriage, and you have absolutely perfected it, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> all right. And you found a way to love each other perfectly after these 13 years of marriage. Yep, that's right. <laughs> and we all know the answer to that. <laughs> uh, next year for John and I, um, in June, 30 years. Like, where did 30 years go, right? Uh, I mean, you know, both of us were married at seven, so, you know, (laughs) we got got special permission from our parents, (laughs) and they're like, you'll grow into it, right? It's good to be, you know, 37, (laughs) yeah, right? (laughs) Yeah, add a couple decades to that, (laughs) and then you're in the ballpark, but guess what? We still haven't perfected it. Uh, we still don't love the way that we should love. But God loves you perfectly. He cannot increase in his love for you. Because if God increases in his love for you, then something is changing God. And if something is changing God, then he's not the God of the Bible. Let me illustrate it this way. Um, I was speaking at a retreat, I think now it's a couple of years ago, um, and we're in Mammoth, beautiful place, and especially Mammoth in the winter snow. And I, I'm, I'm an explorer, so one day I just went out and um, bundled up, and I'm just going to go out and see what I can discover and get off trail a little bit. And I went to a number of places. lake is frozen over, and I wish I could show you a picture of one of the shots that was just outstanding, just pristine, at least in my mind, as I'm out exploring and I'm just by myself and I'm thinking about the glory of God and I have these thoughts about God, um, but it was pretty cold. And Joanna was back at the cabin uh, reading a book uh, with some hot tea by the fireplace. And after, I mean, forget how many hours, I was out exploring, I decided I'm going to come back and uh, what is interesting, I came back and it was just as I thought. She had a book and some tea and she's by the fireplace. And as I came in, I thought to myself, my, it's hot in here because of this sudden change in temperature when I walked into the room. And, and I thought to myself, oh, that's a very interesting thought. And I, and I tend to do that, that's a very interesting thought and I'll meditate on it. And I thought that's somehow how people think about God's love. They think if they behave a certain way, then God will love them more. And people even say, well, God's love will be warmer to you. That's not true. Why is it not true? By using an illustration, it's not true. Here is the reality. God's love is a constant. Constant. It, It cannot fluctuate our experience to God's love made. Because think about it for a moment. When I came in, I said, it's hot. But not really. It wasn't really hot to Joanna because she had been near the fire the entire time. The reason it seemed hot to me, the reason it seemed warm in one sense it was, is because I had been away in the cold. And after I finished exploring in the cold, I came back and now I was near the fire, and I thought, oh my, this is really hot. But after a while, once I took off a couple layers and sat down, I just thought, oh, this is comfortable, because it was the norm. So it's not that God loves you more, it's your experience to God's love. The, the love is a constant, it's a fire that is, is constantly there. And when we wander away, we think he loves me less, no, no. You have decided to obey him less. Therefore, you're not experiencing that love. And then when we repent, we come back and that love is the same. It's just our relationship to his love that changes. And even bringing us back, because sometimes God brings us back through chastisement, through difficulty. That's an expression of his love that is reaching out and saying, let me bring you back to this warm cabin. You've been exploring enough outside. You've been away from me for too long. And God demonstrates this love, which is a constant, by at times making life difficult for us, and he makes life difficult for us to bring us back. So when we get these wonderful pictures of God and his intimacy, the question is, will you be close to God or not? Will you hold his hand or not? God is a holy God. Will you strive for holiness or not? God is a protecting God. Will you be in a position where God can protect you properly? Or will you be running away from him? And these are the decisions that we must make. God is a sovereign God. Everything in your life is happening for a reason. Uh, Nothing is by chance by God. Will you accept God's sovereign plan in your life? That's the question we must ask. And you remember last night, at the end I gave you some dates, and those dates were important, dates. And why was it important? Because when we think about Isaiah writing this, uh, this book, and he is making a prophetic statement that you are going to go away to Babylon, but yet, rest assured, God is a faithful God. He will bring you back again. So, here it is in... We know that in 681, Isaiah wrote about Shennacherib's death and then what is going to happen. They won't start, um, Cyrus defeats the Babylonians in 539. And then the people start to come back in 538. I mean, we're looking at 150 years. So that puts even Isaiah 4031 in context when he says, wait on the Lord. The people of God go into exile maybe for a period of time they don't believe it which they didn't and that's why Jeremiah is preaching and says you're going to go into exile they don't want to believe it and they finally go and now they're discouraged and they're wondering are we ever going to come out again and God is writing to them he has written to them more than a century before saying you will come out again Cyrus is going to deliver you now initially when they're taking to the exile who is Cyrus Who are the Persians? The Persians? How can they defeat the Babylonians? They're the greatest empire that we are aware of. They just defeated the Assyrians, who were treacherous people. But he says, wait. I'm sovereign. I'm intimate. I'm your protector. I'm a holy God. And there's so many applications you can make for your own life in these areas. And as a preacher, at times, uh, there's a temptation Um, to say, here are all the ways in which you can apply it to your life. But if I would have just, if I look at your faces right now, I would say there would be a hundred applications for each one of you. And some of them would overlap, but some of them would be very different because of where you are in life. And I couldn't possibly give you the application for these texts in your life. I can give you general principles, which I will at the end. And we said things already that are applicable to your life, but you must stop and say, God, you're an awesome God. And that's why I say you have to stand in awe of God. And if you stand in awe of God, then you can say, God, I see who you are. What should this mean for my life? How do I apply this to my life? Help me to understand it better. And so we want to finish our our mountaintop view, if you will. I mean, we've, we've been at 37,000 feet for a while, and we may climb a little higher as we go through these texts, and we want to finish these first four reasons that we should stand in awe of God. So let's look at them. Number six is this. Stand in awe of an obedient Savior. An obedient Savior. Look at Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50 he is an obedient savior and now in one sense in my mind we begin to climb perhaps even further because now we're climbing towards this true servant Israel has failed Judah has failed Cyrus will succeed only because it says, remember we looked at it, God is going to take Cyrus by his hand and he's going to guide him through these other nations and eventually come to the Babylonian Empire and he is going to be successful. Cyrus is only successful because of God's hand. That's the only reason he's successful, because of God's guiding hand. And now we're coming to this obedient servant The nation should have been people who were going to be a witness for God. Israel should have been a witness, but they weren't. But there is one who is. He is the obedient Savior. Isaiah chapter 50. Notice the declaration of his obedience. In verse 5, the declaration of his obedience. Verse 5, the Lord God, or Yahweh God, has opened my ear. And I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back nor did I turn back. This is this declaration, which is essentially saying, I have received the command, and if we look to the Gospels, we know in fact to receive the command, especially in John's Gospel, this command is that he would lay down his life. And Christ constantly saying, especially in John's Gospel, that my father has given a command, my father, my father, my father. And I love what it says in John chapter 8, where it says, There I always do the things that are pleasing to him. My father has given me a command, and I will obey that command. He will lay down his life. Notice, if you will, if you turn with me um, to Luke's gospel. In Luke's gospel, Luke's gospel, you see this determination even in Luke's gospel, it's very pronounced. Um, he says, and let's just start a bit of the context. This, um, verse 48, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this, one, this is the one who is great. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does, does not follow us. But Jesus said to him, "Do not hinder, for he who is not against us is for you." Notice verse fifty-one. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. That's an important verse because what is um, Luke nine fifty-one communicating? He was determined to go to Jerusalem because we know what would happen in Jerusalem. That was the place of his sacrifice. And the word here, determine, it means the idea to be fixed. Um, it's used elsewhere in Luke uh, when there is—you remember the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man and Lazarus—it's um, communicated to the rich man: you cannot come over here, and he cannot come to you because there is a great chasm that is fixed. It is settled. It is determined. And Christ is communicating he was determined to go to Jerusalem. So prophetically stated in Isaiah 50, he was not disobedient. He did not turn back. And then we see in Luke 9.51, that is, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Go back with me to Isaiah 50. So that's his declaration of his obedience. But then we see even more so his determination he says, I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheek to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Then in verse 7, for it says, the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced, therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed and the language here, when he set his face like flint, uh, is similar to what has just been communicated in Luke nine fifty one. He was determined to set one's face like flint. Um, it, it means that we are absolutely fixed on something. Nothing can stray us from it. In the scripture, we are told that we should look, our gaze should be fixed straight ahead when we live the Christian life, and we should not look to the left or to the right. That's the... the the wisdom of the proverb. And when it says that our face is like flint, it means that we are absolutely and totally resolved. So the question for us, if we're to be emulators of Jesus Christ, Paul says, of course, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And now Paul imitates the uh, life of Christ. He, he determines in his heart, he will follow this resolve of Christ. The question for us is, Will we have that same resolve? Will we live the Christian life like this? Will we be unashamed of the gospel? And I don't know that a believer can read these verses without something stirring in them when you see, I gave my back to those who strike me. And we think about Jesus Christ being brutalized, and as he was beaten in his back. And I've done some studying this, as others have, obviously. But it was very much the norm when a person would receive the lashes that Jesus Christ received, um, that it would begin to open up the back, and, and you could see. That's amazing to me. You know, I've known the Lord since um, 1983. Uh, that's nearly 40 years. But this is still amazing to me. That someone who is holy. You remember the train of his temple. Uh, the train of his robe is filling the temple. He's, they're crying out. The seraphim are crying out, holy, holy, holy. Isaiah says, I've seen the King, the Lord of hosts, and he would still do this for his glory and for your good. His cheeks, for those who plucked out his beard, literally, and we know the accounts of it. His face spat upon. His face slapped. And of course, the slap someone in the face was a mark of humiliation. We we despise you. Who are you to us? But I did not turn away from it. This is our God. And then, so we see his declaration, we see his determination, but then there's purpose behind it. Notice verses 8 and 9. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold... Yahweh God helps me. Isn't that interesting? Remember how many times have we said before in our earlier passages, I will help you, I will help you, I will help you. And this same God is the one who is helping the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, I can do this. Why? What gives me the strength to go through this? Because Yahweh helps me. And God is saying to his people in Isaiah, I am there to help you. And I will help my servant as well. The suffering servant. And then he says. In verse 9. Behold. They will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. Yes there are those that condemn me now. But they will not survive. But I will. I will be raised again from the dead. God is my helper. So we stand in awe of an obedient savior. And this is obedience. In the face of. Uh, the height of humiliation. Number seven is this. We stand in awe of a sacrificial savior. Go with me to Isaiah um, 52. Isaiah 52. Now in Isaiah 52 verse 13 all the way to through 12 The end of that chapter. Um, the most pronounced example of the suffering servant of Jesus Jesus Christ's sacrifice in all of scripture. And a wonderful testimony of the gospel message itself. A wonderful statement of substitution and even penal substitution that Jesus Christ is going to pay the price for our sins. And there's a certain limitation that language has to communicate this truth. There is Uh, There are limits in how we express ourselves to one another. And that's why even in human language, uh, even in a a certain dominant tongue, within that dominant tongue, there are dialects within it, are there not? And we are aware of that. Um, Even in the United States, when we think about just English itself, uh, there are phrases and ideas, uh, uh, there are idioms that people have in different areas to express themselves because they're trying to bring clarity to something. Um, I grew up in, uh, well, until I went off to school, you know, in Florida, and um, there's a certain dialogue that people can have in Florida. Now, Florida is an odd place because it's, although it's the most southern state, but it's not, in one sense, a southern state. We would always joke and say you have to go north to go to the south, which meant you had to go to Alabama and Mississippi and places like that to get to the south, which was true for some reason. But there are certain ways that people have. There are certain things that they say that communicate um, things. And especially in the South, people will say something. You've heard it before. Perhaps when they'll say, bless your heart. Now what they mean by bless your heart can be several different things. It could mean bless your heart. That you know, you're, uh, the Lord, you know, I'm, I'm so thankful for you. It could mean bless your heart. But it actually can be sarcastic. People don't know that. And they can use it in a sarcastic way. They can say bless your heart, which means I know you mean well, but you really don't get it, do you? <laughs> That's what they mean by bless your heart. Almost like you're trying, but you don't really have the capacity to understand this. So if someone will say bless your heart. So you have to be careful and know which one they mean. You could think they pronounce a blessing, but it could be actually, hmm, this guy really doesn't know anything, does he? We use language. And language is used to help us capture thoughts. Um, this language is, it does its best. It, it can never capture this. What is the language? How do we know he was a sacrificial savior? Notice how it begins. Notice, behold, my servant. Remember, we've already talked about the servants. Now here is the ultimate Servant. He will prosper. He's going to be high and lifted up. He's going to be greatly exalted. And then in verse 14, which we paid a, a bit of attention to on Friday, uh, just as many were astonished at you, my people, his appearance is marred more than any man. So now this language here in 52.14 helps us understand a little bit more what he said in chapter 50 when he did not turn his back away. He, he gave his back to his detractors. And he was, in fact, brutalized to the point, And that's why the language is so strong here in verse 14 that he was marred more than any man. And what it's communicating, if you would have looked at him, you would have thought, what happened to him? He doesn't look like a normal man. Because we think about what he's, he's gone through. He's gone through all of these um, mock trials. He's been kept up. He's been spat upon his face would have been bruised because it says that they were giving him blows to the face. These are Roman soldiers. These are men that are trained in creating harm to people. And the the language is they repeatedly gave him blows in the face. It's not as if they hit him once or twice. They repeatedly gave him blows in the face so his face is bruised and beaten. And then they take him and they're beating him. And at times because of the type of instrument that is used when they pull it away from him. And then it rips away his flesh. And they hit him again. And it rips away his flesh. And they hit him again. And it rips away his flesh to the point you could even see at times records are given of being able to see someone's organs from their back. He's marred more than any man. And the thing that startled me about this some years ago when I first looked at it, simple little word. And it's, in Hebrew, it's like three characters. You know, it's from man, from man. And it's just saying he was so distant from man. When you looked at him, you would have thought, what happened to him? And of course, this is why they said he would be astonished. And they would be astonished because they're saying, and this is a Savior? This is the one who claimed to be God? This is the one who is going to deliver Israel? This is the one who will pay the price for our sins? It can't be. No. They would have surely looked for some great warrior who comes. And even his disciples were confused. Is now the kingdom of God coming? And they were confused about it. And to see him brutalized, this can't be the savior, can it? No, it can't be. But he says, thus, verse 15, he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see and what they had not heard, they will understand. There will come a point where all those nations will bow down before Jesus Christ. You remember the language that we looked at in Isaiah, that eventually, as Judah and Israel would be glorified, nations would bow down to them. They would bring them gifts. That time is coming, but it's only because of Jesus Christ. Let's look at some of the other language in it, and I just give some of these key words to you. Of course, verse 14, he was marred. Verse 3 of chapter 53, he was despised, forsaken, a man of sorrows. He was despised. They did not esteem him. Verse 4, we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God. And what Isaiah is saying in verse 4, you thought that he was being brutalized for some sin that he had done. No, it's just the opposite. He was being brutalized for us. And this is why we have verse 5. He was pierced, he was crushed, he was chastened, he was scourged. Verse 6, all iniquity fell on him. Verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted. Verse 8, oppression and judgment came upon him. Verse 8, he was was cut off from the land of the living, which saying he died for us. Verse 10, the father was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Verse 11, there was anguish in his soul, but yet he bore this, the iniquities of many. And in the end, though, notice verse 12, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. It was only through Christ. He was a sacrificial savior. And we should stand in awe of that. Number eight is this. He is a gracious Savior. Because he's obedient, because he's sacrificial, therefore God in fact will be gracious. Look at Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. And what does it say? I'm just going to, to read these verses to you. And He says, Ho! Everyone who thirsts come to the waters and You have no money. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear to me. Come to me. Listen and you may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercy shown to David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which does not know you will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. What a wonderful text, as we had noted before, this idea of woes that are coming. And this is most likely written here for the people who are in Babylon and are concerned about their everyday survival. And God is saying, I will show you grace. You will get through this period of exile, and eventually I will bring you out if you would just trust in me. Wait on me. And remember that message from Isaiah 40, 31? Wait on the Lord. Some of you are going to... You will become weak, but wait on the Lord. Even young men, you will stumble and fall, but wait on the Lord. The smallest of words communicates so much about the grace of God. Why? Because throughout, there's been woe, woe, woe. Look with me um, to chapter 3. Chapter 3, we go over some of these that we... Considered before chapter three, but it's good to see it as it builds to this crescendo and then it just turns on a dime, if you will. Uh, Chapter three, verse nine, he says, the expression of their faces bears witness against them and they display sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. Woe to them. That's quite a pronouncement, isn't it? They're sinning like Sodom, and we know what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. But notice what he says here. They don't even conceal it. There's this absolute arrogance about them and their evil. And then he says in verse 11, woe to the wicked. It will go badly with him. So woes are there as well. Look at chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 8. We looked at some of these yesterday. Woe to those who add house to house. Verse 11, woe to those who rise early to drink. Verse 18, woe to those who drag iniquity with cords of falsehood. Woe to those, in verse 20, who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who rise up early um, and who are wise in their own eyes. Verse 22, woe to those who are heroes in drinking. So all of these woes. And then in chapter 6, of course, Isaiah says, Woe to me, for I am ruined Look at chapter 10. Woe to those who enact evil statutes, and to those who constantly record unjust decisions. So there's injustice in your society. You're taking advantage of the underprivileged. Why is that? Woe to you. Then he says, woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. Now God will use Assyria to punish his people, but eventually he would say, now woe to you. Because you do not recognize I am the one that allows you to have any success that you have had. Look at chapter 15. Another series of woes. Chapter 15, then in verse um, where is it? Yes, verse 9. It says, for the waters of Damon are full of blood. Surely I will bring added woes upon them. And it goes on, it's in chapter 29, it's in chapter 30, chapter 33, and then notice, if you will, chapter 45. Getting closer to this text, chapter 45, we see another woe, another woe in chapter 45, verse 9. Woe to those who quarrel with their maker, an earthen vessel among the vessels of earth, Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or to the thing you are making, say he has no hands. Woe to them who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, to what are you giving birth? I am your maker, woe on you if you don't listen to me. And so we see all of these woes, and then we come to chapter 55, and it says, ho, why is that important? Because in the language itself, it's the same word. There's not a different word between woe and ho, And woe is just a, a way to say, let me get your attention, let me get your attention. And then the context is going to ter- determine whether or not it's to get your, de- your attention to pronounce judgment or here, let me get your attention and here's a blessing. So why in chapter 55 does it turn? Because I think what has happened Chapter 45 is this last war, if you will. Then what do we see in chapter 50? There's an obedient servant who's going to give his life. Chapter 52 and 53, there's an obedient servant who's going to be despised and forsaken. And now, because of him, I can give you without money and without cost. The language here is very applicable for us today. Notice verse 2 of Of Isaiah 55. Why do you spend money for what is not bread. And your wages for what does not satisfy. Let's pause for a moment. How many of you in life. You have spent your time and effort. And resources on things that truly did not satisfy you. Yeah. It's all happened to us all. haven't, We just thought this is it. This will bring me satisfaction. And then it doesn't. And some of you, before you knew the Lord, you, you're trying different things in life. This will bring me satisfaction. This person will bring me satisfaction. If I have this recognition, this will bring me satisfaction. And at the end of it, you realize I am now even more dissatisfied. How many people do you know personally? They're on a road right now thinking that if they gain this status, if they had this position, if they had these things, then they will be satisfied. And it is ultimately a path of destruction. I mean, a part of my own testimony is that there I was, you know, uh, in college and thinking life is great for me. Look at all the things that I have. Look at all the people that know me. Look where I'm going and I'll never forget it. I was driving on campus that day in that car and I looked over and I said, God, what is missing in my life? There are many people that would, would have loved to trade spots with me, but then they didn't know internally that there was turmoil. Because I'm spending money on things that will not satisfy. I'm spending my life on things that are not bread. And this is what God is saying to his people. You're striving after things that will create even more thirst. Why? That's the foolishness of the world. Turn to me and listen to me and you'll live. Follow my word and you'll be satisfied. I'm a gracious God. I wish to give to you. I don't have time to look at Isaiah 57. Although, let's, yeah, briefly we can. Isaiah 57. Briefly we can. Isaiah 57. God is a gracious God. We see it in Isaiah 55. Um, Our salvation is without money and without cost. But there was a great cost, Isaiah 52 and 53, Isaiah 50, all of our iniquities fell on the servants. So there was a price paid, but simply not by us. And that's why we can come, that's why salvation is by grace, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. All of our wages are worthless. This morning, you know, as I went on my traditionally do on Sunday mornings, my jog, walk, and I talk about what I'm going to preach and give a general outline and some key thoughts, and I found a trail. I went on Forest Road initially, but I found a trail called the Sequoia Trail, and I began to explore there, and um, it was a great time, and I heard that creek and the sound of it um, in these just tall redwoods, you know, over me. And as I finished my introduction to the lesson for today, I just flipped the camera around and I just walked along the trail. And I'll post it later at some point in time just about the gospel. And as I was walking along talking about the gospel. And I turned around at one point in time and I said, look at that trail. Now look at the vastness of this area. Look at the vastness of these trees. But there's one trail and it's fairly narrow and the trail actually... Um, was a bit narrow than this aisle right here as I'm on that trail, and that's like the gospel. And the gospel is, in fact, there. There's a broad road, and it leads to destruction. And I turned the camera and I said, even these great redwoods, at some point in time, they go through a life cycle. And there was this one redwood that had been, that was fallen. And there it was at the bottom of the ravine, if you will. And it was next to the creek. And I thought, isn't that interesting? There it is right next to the waters, which is life giving, but it can't take the waters in. Because it's dead. And it's the gospel message is, you are dead. And you can be right next to the waters of life, but until you recognize the fact that you are dead and you have life, and that only comes by the grace of God, you cannot have life. And as long as you're on a broad road, that is a road to destruction. And I made this point and I say it again, that there are people who are next to that water of life and they don't know it. Or they do know it, but they refuse to admit it. And there can be people in the church that are next to the water of life and they hear the water of life preach Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, but they can't take it in because they're dead. They like Christianity. They enjoy some of the topics of Christianity. They have wonderful friends in the church, but they're like that tree that's dead right next to the creek, right next to the creek. So I pause for a second, and I feel it's my responsibility to say this. Because I've not met everyone. I've not heard everyone's testimony. So I ask you even right now, where are you? Can you truly stand in awe of God? You cannot possibly stand in awe of God until you've submitted to God in humility and repented of your sins. And you say, God, will you forgive me? Uh, this is in the past, it's been intellectual assent. I recognize these facts, but it is not in my heart. Have you come to the waters of life? Are you still spending your wages on what is not bread and will not satisfy? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ is in fact your Savior? He is a gracious God. And even if you've been in the church for a while and you have pretended for a while or maybe you you were just confused and sometimes that's that's what it is. You're confused. You didn't quite understand it. But when that light comes on, you must respond. He wants to forgive. Isaiah 57, we see another example of his forgiveness, of his graciousness. How do we see it? Notice the language is so strong. Notice we're talking about climbing an altitude here. Notice what it says. It takes us back even to the thought that we had in Isaiah 6 of this loftiness and God being exalted. Notice verse 14. And it was said, um, Build up, prepare the way. Remove every obstacle out of the way of my people. Notice verse 15. For thus says the high and exalted one, who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place. And initially you, you hear that thought, and you say, that's in fact, that is a mountaintop view of God and his excellence and his uniqueness and his holiness and who he is. But what's beautiful about it in this verse, you see grace. How do you see it? Verse 15, and also, so important, and also, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Just like in Isaiah 6, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up the train of his robe filling the temple. Woe is me for I'm ruined. But yet, the seraphim come and there's forgiveness. God is high. He's eternal. He's holy. But yet, He's with the contrite and lowly. That's a beautiful, gracious God, is it not? Here's our last thought. The ninth reason to stand in awe of God. Stand in awe of a completing God. A completing God. Chapter 65. It all comes to an end. So we start in a book that is starting with a woe. The nations are vile. They have disrespected me. Israel is vile, they've disrespected me. Judah, vile, they've disrespected me. And now my servant would come and he would give his life for people who were vile and disrespected him. And remember, he came to his own and his own received him not. I will make all things new, he says. Verse 17, behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. Now think about this in contrast. Jerusalem for rejoicing, it had been destroyed by the Babylonians, utterly destroyed. The great temple destroyed. It was rebuilt again, but even the people, uh, when it was rebuilt in the time of you know Nehemiah, Ezra, they would... In one sense, complain because they realize this is not what the temple used to be. It's not the former glory. And why was it not? Because it was destroyed. But now God says, instead of it being a place of mourning, it's going to be a place of rejoicing. And then notice what he says in verse 19. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be, be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. I remind you again, there was a voice of weeping and crying in the people of God. Even the prophets would say, in fact, some of you, are go, it's going to be so bad, you may even take to eating your own children. There will be weeping and crying. Then he says in verse 20, No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days, for the youth would die at the age of 100 and the one who does not reach the age of 100, he will thought to be accursed. There will be houses and inhabit them. There will be vineyards. They will build and inhabit. They will plant and eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people, and my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. God is going to complete what he started. Notice verse 24. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer, And while they're speaking, I will hear the wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lion will eat straw like the ox and the dust will be the servant's food. There will be no evil or harm in my holy mountain, says the Lord. So he gives us a picture of the future, this great millennial kingdom and a picture that's even beyond that in chapter 66 of a new heavens and a new earth. God will complete what he started. You can read through parts of Isaiah and you wonder, how can this all come together? God will complete what he started. Think about uh, the book of Philippians and it says, um, God will complete his work of salvation in you. God will complete his work of salvation for all of creation. Now, we said a lot uh, we should all stand in awe of God. And like I said, in each one of these points, we could have stopped and, and dropped that anchor and go f- and gone further into them. But I have some responses for you. And I'm going to end with these responses. Let me give you nine responses to standing in awe of God's greatness. Number one is this. Determine to live distinct from the world. Uh, God is holy. The, script, the scripture calls us to be holy. I will live a distinct life. People will see that I am different. Determined to do that. Jesus Christ was determined to go to Jerusalem. Make it your determination to be distinct. Number two is this. You want to respond and how can we stand in awe? I would say this. Reciprocate intimacy with God. God is intimate with you. It it is clear. He is the initiator of it. He is extending his hand. But what what we must also do is extend our hand to him. Live in intimacy with God. Consider Psalm 27. that The psalmist says he wanted to behold the beauty of God. Consider Psalm 34 and it says this. "Oh, That we taste and see that the Lord is good. To live in intimacy with God. And think about this for a moment. The very fact that you can. The very fact that you can live in intimacy with such a great Savior. Is a mind blowing consideration. Walk in intimacy with Him. Talk with Him. Read His Word. Meditate on His Word. Be like Paul, that I might know Him. Number three is this. Boldly proclaim the Gospel. Boldly proclaim the Gospel. Why should we boldly proclaim the Gospel? Think about it for a moment. We should boldly proclaim it because as we said, we stand in awe of an exclusive Savior We have the message. So boldly proclaim it. And I say boldly because even Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, as he is working through the arm of God and then he makes a statement, he says, pray for me that I will speak boldly as I ought to speak. And I think all of us know there have been some point in time when we know we should have spoken for the Lord and we did not. And we can be like a Peter and even with peter a little servant girl can silence him but we should be bold it's an exclusive he is an exclusive savior we make no apology for that whatsoever whatsoever and to think otherwise is to hate people and that's that's where the enemy is such a conniver Because uh, the trend is towards what we say will be considered hate speech when it's just the opposite. It's just like me this morning when I'm on that trail and it's a narrow path. And then we go out and we tell people, no, the path is much, much more broad than that. And it is not. And what happens if you get off the path? You fall to your own doom. And I've I've literally been to places like that. Now, on this path, I I could have fallen, but there was some shrubbery and and branches that may have caught me, may have. But I've been to places in Israel where we are, it's that wide. And you stay on the path. And I've been through the Grand Canyon and going down the trail, and you stay on the path. And there are times with my kids and Joanna can attest to it. We've been to the Grand Canyon several times and I was there when my kids were younger and I said, okay, come here. This is what we're going to do. We're going to go off trail a little bit but you follow me. This is not the time to play around. Not the time to play around. Because it was a bonus to go with dad because they know dad always goes off trail. (laughs) But it's not the time to play around. And I told him, I said, because if you fall, then your mom's going to kill me, right? <laughs> and I said, if you play around, and I meant it, I will, you will stop right there, you will go to the side, we'll leave you a canteen of water, and when we come back again, we'll pick you up. I can't have it. And we went to some areas where you, other people don't go, and it was beautiful. But you had to stay on the trail. It was dangerous. And there are times when you want to do this, you want to say, oh, wow, that is so cool. Then all of a sudden, gravity takes over, and lo and behold, you meet your maker. (laughs) It's hateful to tell people there's a broad road. It's hateful to tell people, yeah, there could be another way, because it's to their doom. Just like me getting the kids together and their friends, stay on the path. It's dangerous over there. Here's a fourth response. Number four, diligently protect the truth of the gospel. He is our protecting God, so now diligently protect the truth of the gospel. Um, Paul to Timothy, it says that the church is the, the pillar and protector of truth. So we must protect the gospel, stand up for it. I, I wish in one sense that there were just more Bible churches everywhere. I wish in one sense, and I've said it before, that there would be no need for my ministry uh, of Grace Advance, helping churches start. Why do we need to help our church start? Because there are Bible churches everywhere. Everyone is preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ unashamedly. Everyone is holding to the doctrines of faith. There's no need for Bible churches anywhere. But we know that's not the case, don't we? so we're called as a remnant to protect the gospel hold fast to it number 5 is this what can we do how can we respond rest in god's sovereign plan for your life rest if he's a sovereign god that can use a persian who is not even born and a nation that hasn't even risen yet to punish the greatest nation at that time or nation at that time then I think he knows what's happening in your life. If he is the same God as we notice in Isaiah 40, what is it, 26, that look to the heavens and see all these stars which I have made, and I know them all by name, and not one of them is missing. If, if there are stars that are the size of our solar system, and they're all upheld hell, as the scripture says, by the word of his power in Ephesians 1 and 3, He knows what's happening in your life. And he's a sovereign God that allows things in your life because it's better for your life. There are moments, no one, and make sure you understand, pain, difficulty, suffering. um, There's no inherent joy in the pain, difficulty, and suffering. But there's inherent joy in the outcome, which is Christ-likeness. Number six is this. Christ was obedient. To the point of death. And the scripture tells us what. Even death on a cross. Philippians chapter 2. So I would say respond to his awesomeness. His holiness. Worship. Worship through obedience. How can I worship you God? Obey. And this is why even the prophet said to Saul. And to everyone that has read it since. That uh, obedience is better than sacrifice. Obey the living God. That is my act of worship. That's Romans chapter 12. It's our spiritual um, act of service to worship the living God. This is what we're called to do. But it's important that we understand worship. And we had an engaging conversation yesterday with the elders about worship and the importance of it to make sure that we understand it. And at some point in time, you perhaps may hear more about it. If we cannot understand worship, we cannot understand the Christian life. We're called to be worshipers. Number seven is this. How can we respond? God is a gracious God. We saw it. Isaiah 55, Isaiah 57. Even we didn't look at it, Isaiah 58, 6 through 11. God is such a gracious God. Um, generously give if you want to respond number eight or num- number seven I'm sorry generously give of your time and resources generously give of your time and resources God has created me with, for a purpose and with a skill set and with resources how do I use them for the glory of God God has been gracious to me let me be gracious to the people of God and to the local church in whatever capacity that, that is Number eight is this. God is a gracious God. How can we respond? Demonstrate grace in every relationship you have. Be known as a gracious person. Be known as a person that will extend forgiveness. This is why I say, for instance, in the scriptures, uh, like in Colossians, it tells us that we're to be forbearing with one another, forgiving one another. And notice what it says, just as. And what does it say? Just as what? You have been forgiven in Christ, just as Christ is forgiven in you. So the question then is this, how much have you been forgiven? And if you take into account how much you've been forgiven, then you must be a person who will extend grace to other people. So demonstrate grace in every relationship that you have. Here's a ninth response, and it's this. God completes his work of redemption. Praise God for that. He will not leave us behind. He will conform us more and more to the image of Christ. And I would say this. Thank the Lord for his sanctifying grace. God, I thank you that it is not up to me to complete this. <laughs> I thank you. I cannot work my way to the end. Yes, there is a sense when, of course, we, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But what does the scripture say? It is God who is at work in us. Thank you, Lord. That I will not be left behind. Thank you that you will conform me to the image of Jesus Christ. Thank you that you are an awesome God. And I can know you. And I can serve you. And I can love you. And I can walk with you. So if you will. Carry the image of even my walk this morning. This one image. Perhaps it's not the best one for you. It will stay with me for a while. As I was on that trail on that narrow path. But it was beautiful all around me. And I saw dangers to my left and to my right. I saw life that had been taken away, but it was right next to life-giving water. I mean, I looked up and saw these redwoods just towering above me. And even last night as we were going back, even with some of the light pollution that's here in the center, I could still see the stars glimmering above me. What an awesome God. And at any point in time, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you can stop and have communion with this God. Why? A servant went before you. One who was obedient. One who opened that gate for you. And if that gate is so open, why would you not take advantage of it? Stand in awe of God. He is holy. Amen? Father, we thank you for these words you've given us. I pray that you would use them to the glory of your name, that Christ would be honored. Amen.